What was your weirdest job? Maybe think back to like your first job as a teenager. Uh, maybe it was just a job you took in college. Maybe you went and worked for a temp agency and you got assigned to something that was off the wall. What was your weirdest job? For me, it's gotta be a tie between two things. Um, I worked for a while at a pasta factory as a temp worker. Um, learned a lot about pasta, especially how the store brand and the name brand are just different packaging and they just keep the line going. So it's changed my pasta buying habits. Um, the other one I think wasn't even technically a job, but I was actually a medical test subject <laughs> and uh, compensated for it. So that was another thing. Ask me about that one sometime. Um, but I've done a lot of jobs growing up. And sometimes at the temp agency with a day or two, sometimes for a few months or years. Uh, but I've been a camp store cashier for a Christian camp. I've been a general laborer in the vineyards. Uh, I've been a grade eight math tutor, uh, retail cashier, resident advisor in a dorm, Walmart returns desk. Uh, Niagara ice wine picker, when it gets nice and cold in the vineyards, you get to crawl through the vineyards on your knees in snow pants and pick the vines, because it's too delicate for any machinery. Um, I've been a tile grout cleaner during midnights in office buildings. Um, again, test subject, babysitter, barista. Uh, I've done a few more things. I was a college biology tutor. I was a landscaper, a leather worker, sign maker, and I got to be a couple times assistant to uh, CEOs and directors in corporate settings. And then I worked in ultrasound, cardiac ultrasound, for 10 years. Probably more like 11, but we'll say it's a solid 10. Um, so here's a verse that I have thought about once or twice during there. Colossians 3, 23 to 25. Whatever you do, <laughs> whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. I worked a lot of places. So today when we're talking about work as part of our Mission of Life series, uh, like I said, you know, they've had some uh, sermon content that we've been using and modifying, so it's a little different than normal where I'm not writing it all from scratch. Um, I, I feel like I just have a lot to say about this, and I'm so excited at the direction that their content has gone, so I'm excited to preach this. Because I thought a lot about this thing. Um, and a third of your life is going to be spent at work, right? Even if you're you know, a stay-at-home parent and that's your job. That is 90,000 hours in some sort of job, some sort of career, some sort of vocation. And by the time you hit, uh, you hit, your, you hit age 30, most of us have had seven or eight different jobs. We're way out of the historical time period where you'd work at one job for most of your life and you'd be like a company man or a steel plant worker. That is not the norm. The norm now is that if you move to a city, you'll probably stay five to seven years max. And in jobs, we switch on average once every seven years. So a third of your life is spent at work, 90 thousand hours for most of us. The average Canadian spends 49 minutes a day commuting. Now, I'm thankful we're in the north, and we bring that average down, right? Like, well, I could commute with a three-minute drive to my ultrasound job before. I'm like, this is so great. But the average Canadian spends almost an hour a day commuting, because that's the average. And many students, right, they come to Algoma 
because school is going to lead to work, right? They go to Sioux College or Algoma University because they believe it's going to affect their future and provide for a job, and they'll take a bunch of jobs along the way. So work is what we spend a ton of our lives doing, all of us in one fashion or another. And a lot of us have spent not so much time thinking about what that means. Some of us have studied the topic, some of us have done this more than others, but at the very least, it warrants some pretty regular reflection. It warrants some clear teaching out of scripture as to, you know, if you're gonna spend 90,000 hours at work, a third of your life, what does that mean on God's perspective? Is it just like a hurdle to get over before you get to the real spiritual stuff? Or is it just the thing that like, you know, you can do it well and check it off the list, but in the end, it doesn't have a lot of meaning? Um, or does God have a little more for us to say? And it's probably no surprise that God has a little more to say about work and what he's created work for. Um, sometimes when we think of work, right, we can think of like the work as a gift, like the dream job thing, right? Like we can think of work in creation um, before there was sin, before the fall of man, before there was like toil and labor. We could just think of like God's craftsmanship, right? This is the idea that work is a gift. And this is the Hebrew word melakah, which talks about craftsmanship as well when it talks about God in creation. There was a book in 2009 called Shop Class as Soul Craft, and it was really popular, talking about how working with your hands and creating high-quality stuff was important. And as we've seen kind of a, a resurgence of the artisan movement, the idea that handmade things are valuable, local things are valuable, doing good things with your hands is valuable, this goes with the idea that, again, work is a gift. Sometimes we get the idea that work is a gift when we're in uh, what they call a flow state. Has anybody heard of a flow state before? Um, Suspense highly, I think, is the guy's last name, right, who came up with the term. The idea is that when you are skilled at something, when you're good at it, you can have a state of focus where just distractions drop away. And you can do it for a long time, and you can work really productively. And it's something that we're, we're, we're built to do. We're built to enjoy it. We're built to get in a flow state. And this doesn't have to be necessarily a hands-on thing. Um, this can be, you know, you're making a bunch of spreadsheets and you're really into it and you just craft the perfect thing, right? Like the Excel thing when the formulas work, like it can be beautiful, right? It can be when you're painting or you do something that's really hands-on artisan. You go, wow, I'm creating a thing of beauty. For me, this can happen when I'm sermon writing and I can just keep bringing information together and praying about it and the Holy Spirit's bringing out insights. Uh, but honestly, this used to happen to me as a Walmart cashier when I would just be checking people through over and over, talking to them, smiling, and I'm like, I'm good at my job, I'm doing it, I'm fast enough, this is good, and just hours would fly by because I was in this flow state. Now, a flow state isn't the biggest thing. Author Jeanette Walls talks about how her mom would get in such a flow state in painting that she would ignore her children, even their cries for food. And so she burned herself as a child when she was three trying to cook hot dogs on the stove because her mom was so absorbed in her painting that she would ignore her cries for hungry children. So this idea that work is a gift, but even the good ways we can be absorbed with it, the good ways that high skills can really uh, absorb us in our work, that's not, not the whole story. Because work as a gift is marred by the fall. And, and gr growing up, you know, I think a lot of us have some idea of this either from the church or even... Um, if you haven't grown up as a Christian from like the Christian idea of work is the idea of work as toil. Have you guys ever heard of this? Like you will eat by your toil, the sweat of your brow. Did you guys know that this is referenced only three times in the Old Testament? 
this idea that work is going to be inherently difficult, which is surprising, right? Because how many times in work are we like, this is not easy peasy lemon squeezy. This is difficult, difficult, lemon difficult, right? Like things are hard. Like the toil sure seems to crop up a whole lot for being there only three times in the Old Testament, right? Or like, what do I do in this situation? Oh man, this is really hard. One of my first jobs, we probably didn't make the list, was when I was like sorting catalogs for mailing, and I think I was 13. When you're, you know, when you're 13, the days are so much longer compared to when you're older, and I'm like, this is taking forever. Like this is just the work's not hard, but like it's never gonna end. We've all been in those shifts, those conversations, those meetings where like it's never gonna end. Lord, take me home. Like just it's enough. But it's actually mentioned three times in the New, in the Old Testament, and it's Genesis 3:16 and 17, where it talks about the pain that we'll have in childbirth, the pain that we'll have in work because of the fall. And then it's in Genesis 5:29 as well, because that's when it talks about God reversing the curse. Lamech names his son Noah in Genesis 5:29, and he says, "He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, that word for toil, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed." So the first two times we're talking about the toil of our hands, it's going to be hard. We experience this. And then even with Noah, the third time it's mentioned, Lamech is prophesying a rest. A rest that will arrive for us in our painful toil, that Noah will bring comfort. I know Noah's ark, of course, is salvation and a foretaste of what Christ would do for us in our work. And so even though toil is our experience, it is not what God thinks for the most part about work. God's words are the creativity, the craftsmanship, and then by far in the Old Testament, the biggest word hundreds of times is this word, avodah. Hebrew, avodah. This is in contrast to what work looks like in our culture. Because what work likes in our cult looks like in our culture is more often a toil unto itself, or even a God unto itself. One person wrote this in The Atlantic, and they talked about how work becomes a God in a society that doesn't have gods. He said, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism, work as your God, is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Like in, in contrast, one of the benefits of being an observant Christian, Muslim, or Zoroastrian is that those God-fearing worshipers put their faith in an intang in, in, intangible and unfalsifiable force of goodness. But work is tangible. We can see it, right? And success is often falsified. To make either the centerpiece of one's life is to place one's esteem in the mercurial hands of the market. To be a workist is to worship a God with firing power. If your God is your work, you worship a God with firing power. It can be taken away at any time. And so 87% of people are unhappy with their jobs. 80% of workers say they hate their jobs. And if you spend 10 hours above the average of your time at work, 10 hours extra on the job every week on a regular basis, things like your risk of divorce suddenly double. So work is not only something that we feel sometimes as toil, but it can take the place of God, and it can have effects on us 
where we're worshiping something that's unstable. If our identity and our happiness depends on our job, then we worship, as they say, a God with firing power. In contrast to what God's design work to be. So again, in the Old Testament, this is what God's view is on work. This is what God says the vast majority of the time about work, and it's a word called avodah. It has three main meanings, and there are three things that are not, you know, just fringe meanings or once in a while, but these are three, like, primary meanings of avodah. And the idea is that this is work as worship. Our service, our worship, and our vocation. The same root word. And so the proper noun is 145 times. The full word is 289 times. And then the substantive form is another 780 times. So three times for toil, almost 1,000 times total for avodah. Avodah is really important in the Old Testament, and the range of meanings is really important. So sir, the first part, service, is that it means that you serve. You submit yourself to somebody else. You're either a subject to a king, you're a slave to a master, you're a son to its father. And so King Rehoboam asks, is asked by the people in 1 Kings 12, would, would you lighten the service that you've placed, that people, that you've placed in the people of Israel? Would you lower the taxes? They're using this word to say, as people, we serve you, part of our work is to pay taxes. And they're asking him, would you lighten our avodah? Would you lighten the service that we give you? It can also be talked about as worship. So very famously, when, um, the exodus, when, when in Exodus, God calls Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. He says, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, Exodus 3 verse 12, you will worship Avod, Avodah, God on this mountain. So Avodah is also the work of worship. So it's service, but it's also worship. We worship God. That is also our, our Avodah. It's also our work. So it's service, it's worship, and it's also the idea of a job, a vocation, a thing that you do as common labor or for money. This isn't put down, it's not denigrated, it's not second class to work with your hands in the Old Testament or the New Testament. This is the idea that the work of our hands is also part of this. It's part of our service, it's part of our worship. And so again, all through Exodus, they talk about that, Ezekiel, Genesis, paid and unpaid both count as this vocation. Um, and even when they're saying, you know, on the six days you must work, do your labor, that's avodah. That's the commandment. Six days, do your avodah. And on the seventh day, you get to rest. So that's why you have scriptures like Exodus 34, 21. Then man goes out to his avodah, his labor until evening. Psalm 104, 23, talking about the Exodus. Let my people go so they may worship avodah me. Exodus 8, verse 1. But as for me and my household, we will serve avodah the Lord. Joshua, Joshua 24, 15 for that one. The scriptures tell a different story because it's three things that God thinks that work should involve. Service, worship, and vocation. And so this is the framework that we need to come out of when we go to the New Testament and look at Jesus and how he worked. This is the framework that we come out of if we want to avoid our 90,000 hours just being toil or even being a craft that we make an idol out of where we let affect our relationships. Because we need to have the center of Avodah. This course, they love a Venn diagram, and I also love a Venn diagram, so we've got a Venn diagram of like three overlapping circles of this, that we want to, to, to not miss the center of what Avodah means. This is work, 
right? Worship, service. So what happens if you have worship and you have vocation but no service? If you think, man, my work is really about worshiping God and and, and I really feel called to it, but there isn't the idea of working for others to serve other ones. That's when we can get caught in advancement, right? The idea that we really have to get ahead. Oh, it's for the glory of God that I'm really trying to work myself so much more forward in my job. But we can put people to the side for it, right? You can try to do a lot of things for God that God's never asked you to do. So the label for that would be careerism, right? I'm going to work really hard, and it's all for the glory of God, but I'm going to leave out my service to others. I'm going to leave out the relationships. I'm going to leave out the good of the world. And careerism ultimately puts glory in the wrong place. We can claim we're doing things for God, but ignore our call to serve and to lift up others in our communities. There can also be just plain old activism. This is the thing that you don't need God for, right? You can have a great, incredible amount of service. And you can have a great amount of vocation. I'm called to this. I have to make the world better. Look at what I'm doing. This is so important. But if we leave out the vertical dimension, if we leave out God, right, that's just where you get activism. It's not worship. It's not done for the glory of God and being with God in his work and partnering for him. It's us full steam ahead saying this is important work for others, but we can ignore the vertical dimension. And then the other part, which can happen a lot, is plain old exhaustion. And that's when we can say, okay, there's there's worship, I'm worshiping God through this, and I really want to serve other people, but there's no sense of calling. There's no sense of meaning in the work. And that can be because it's not a good match for our skills, and it can be hard to really remember that there's dignity in all kinds of work, and Um, Over time, we're going to get frustrated if there's a big mismatch to our skills. Um, You can hate your job and still try to worship God and serve people. But long term, if we have a mismatch between what we're called to and good at and skilled at, it's difficult. And some people, just for necessity, have to do that their whole lives, right? We're in a culture where we have such vocational mobility, such, such a capacity for most of us to move away from this. But not everybody can. Not everybody's able to get a better job or a fitting job. And so we need to acknowledge that when we don't create meaningful jobs, when we participate in things that make difficult, meaningless, underpaid jobs for people, we're contributing to more of this exhaustion. And sometimes when we have to work through seasons of this or even long term, this deep exhaustion is just a side effect. I think of my dad who gave up uh, carpentry in the 1990s during the recession, and he's worked as a truck driver now for about 30 years. It's not like the passion of his heart or anything. And he does it well, and he does it as worship, and he serves people. But I tell you, that man's exhausted. And he takes his rest, and he loves Jesus, and he loves his family, but it's really hard. And because, though, he has a deep sense of calling to provide for his family, he has a deep sense of calling to do with his work with excellence. He has a deep sense of calling to find the meaning in the work. He's a lot less exhausted than he could be because he's finding the avodah in his job. So there's a couple sides here, right? When we want to create and have opportunities for people to do meaningful work, we want to move towards that ourselves, but also recognize that even in any kind of work, we can find the avodah and the calling that God has for us. So when we talk about worship, we have that first uh, passage, right? Whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Do you know this passage is to people who are slaves? I mean, in that culture, they had no dignity at all. You work because you have to, that's it. And certainly, you don't have any accountability for what your masters do to you. This is an incredibly dignifying picture, that your work that you do, it's not based on your status, the rung on a corporate ladder, whether like in Western culture you could choose a different job. These people couldn't choose a different job. The value of their work is, first and foremost, is the worship part of Avodah. It's an offering of worship directly to God. So if you're a Christian in the early church, if you've been told that you are of no value and your work is of no value, this is incredibly liberating and leveling, right? It gives us this freedom of, wow, my work actually does matter, but also we all serve a master in heaven. There's no favoritism. There's justice that God cares about, and God cares about justice as relates to our work. And anything that a master could do to a slave was acceptable in Roman society. But here he says, everyone's accountable to God. How we act is all about serving a master in heaven. This is empowering, right? No matter who you are or what you do, you can do it for God. And this also, of course, runs counter to some modern ideas, right? That working itself is inherently bad, or if you have to labor, you're just being oppressed by, you know, the ruling class who is doing less work. This is actually pointing out whoever you are, you should be doing work. If you have a lot of privilege and a lot of money, you shouldn't be avoiding work and putting it all on the people below you. But if you're in a place where you've got to do a lot of labor, as most of us are, it's worship to God. It's work as worship. And sometimes, right, we have this secular, sacred dichotomy. Some of us have grown up with it. Some of us have just felt the pressure about it or maybe kind of naturally fallen into it. Some of us don't get this, this division. Some of us just naturally are like, yeah, everything I do is for God. I don't divide up my, my work time and my church time. But sometimes the secular and sacred division comes in, right? This idea that like, okay, I go to church, I read the Bible, I witness, I pray, I sing. This is the God stuff. And then when I go to work, well, well you know, like this is just like not actually spiritual. We can even take this, by the way, into our church volunteering. Like, well, I'm on the prayer team. That's spiritual. But editing video, making coffee, like, like that's not really like the God stuff, right? God's idea of Avodah is all of it is worship. Every single bit. I can tell you as a pastor, there's a whole lot of editing, administration, and legal stuff. There's a whole bunch of things where I'm like, this doesn't seem very spiritual, but it's still my spiritual work as worship, right? It's still what God calls work as worship. And all of life can be sacred, right, if our motives match up. You can be sitting in a church service, right, and you can be angry and bitter and just like spitting fire in your heart, resenting the person in front of you, stewing over the things of the past four weeks. Is that, is that worship? Not so much, right? And you can also be doing your expense reports. And you can do your expense reports for God and you can be thanking him and you can be doing it as worship and saying, God, I'm going to do these with excellence as an offering to you. That's a lot closer to worship with those expense reports than if we're sitting in a church without a heart of worship, without an attitude of worship. The work of Jesus in the New Testament could happen anywhere. Of Jesus' 132 public appearances in the New Testament, 10 of them were at a place of religious gathering. 122 appearances of Jesus were out among the people. So even Jesus' own life wasn't, well, I'm going to go to the one place where I can worship. What Jesus did for his work 
I think we'd say it's God's work. I think we'd say what Jesus did was, was work as worship, was out among the people. Of the 52 parables that Jesus told, 45 of them had a workplace context. If, when Jesus tells a story, 45 out of 52 are about the workplace, I think Jesus cares about the workplace too. Gordon MacDonald says that Jesus was called and not driven. MacDonald wrote a book about the same year I was born called Ordering Your Private World. And it talks about as a leader what it means to be called by God as opposed to driven from within. This idea, right, of workism, of having to do more and be more and accomplish more and hustle more is contrary with the idea of vocation. That's the second part, right? Avodah is worship and avodah is vocation. Here's the kind of thing that God calls us to. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Make your ambition, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. That's a word for someone, it might be me. And work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. You know, in Greek society at the time, they believed that manual labor was lowly, that it wasn't worth anything, that it was secondary, that it was not to be desired. And if you could move away from manual labor, you could do the real work of the mind. The highest labor was thought. But in Genesis 2, verse 7, what happened? What does God say is one of the first things he does. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of his, the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. God works with his hands from the start. And so we have this sense of vocation, our sense of meaning and fulfillment, this connection of our, our purpose and gifting and skill and energy. It says that God is involved in what we do and that it's holy. And again, sometimes we find something where, as Buchner says, our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, right? We can do these things where we're like, oh, I'm called to this job, this is great. But also we can find vocation in, as I'm a cashier checking people out, am I blessing them in their day? Am I doing the job accurately? Am I doing it quickly? Am I someone who is bringing the light of Christ to that Walmart checkout lane? Or to whatever the Thessalonians are called to do. As I was doing one of my first jobs in the vineyard, I was cutting sticks into 12-inch sections for grafting into vines. And in and of itself, I'm just like, well, I'm just sitting in this thing in February grafting sticks or cutting sticks. Um, if I didn't connect that to God's purposes, if I didn't connect that to the meaning that God had, it'd be a lot easier to get bored or frustrated or just go like, what does this job mean? But remembering, what am I doing? Well, I'm part of a business of this family that came over from Germany to own a vineyard. And they're going to make some really nice bottles of wine that aren't going to be drunk really fast, but that are going to be savored and enjoyed as part of the world that God's given. So I can understand, even at 13 years old, the vocation in cutting up these sticks. And that all work, we have this sort of thing, this vocation of doing it for God. God has dirt under his fingernails. And so God invites us to join in him in his work, whatever our industry is. The uh, discussion guide that's out in the lobby, you can grab one if you don't have one, and they'll be been talking about on Wednesdays. They have these questions in it called a theology of your industry. And they're questions like this. What drew you to your work? Some of us will say, like, the paycheck, right? Like, some of us have a different answer. What do you love about your work? What do you hate about your work? Which scriptures shape a theology of your work? What in the Bible speaks specifically to the kind of work you do? Uh, what are the ethical tensions of your work? We're all going to encounter them. 
What are the ethical tensions, the difficulties, the places where we have to tread carefully and ask for discernment? What can you do to release beauty in your work? And what can you do to repair brokenness in your work? Probably one of my favorites, if Jesus did your job for 30 years in obscurity, how would he do it? It's a very famous quote by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and you may have heard it before. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, sweep streets like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great sweep sweeper who did his job well. Because culture is not neutral. Culture is shaped by our work. And culture is either moving towards beauty or brokenness, towards wholeness or towards worse disrepair. How can you work so that your part of the world is moved towards redemption and beauty and flourishing? There's a Jewish, Jewish concept for this called tikkun olam, the repair of the world that we are people of righteousness, and every job that is you know, not inherently harmful can be done well and accomplish this. The last part is service. Now, as Christ came, right, he didn't just preach the kingdom, but he healed people. He fed people. Everything he did was for us, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus models this for us. We have a vision for doing everything for the glory of God and using it to bless and serve and advance others. I mean, at the most basic sense, right, you work and you provide for yourself and your family. You have an inheritance, as Proverbs 13.22 says, for future generations. You build up. You don't just consume everything that you make. I love Proverbs 31.15-16, right? Talking about, again, an ancient culture where women didn't have a ton of agency, well, the Proverbs 31 woman not only gets up, provides for her family, but she's making real estate transactions and she's planting vineyards and she's doing all these things to provide for people and to take care of others. First Thessalonians, right? You want to provide for yourself and your family. And Ephesians 4.28 says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands. Oh, but so that, so that they may have something to share with those in need. Even if you're just starting to get your first honest work, service is an inseparable part of it. Right from the beginning of, you're going to go from taking stuff from other people to working on your own, right away the responsibility is there. How do we serve those in need? How does God make us people of grace and provision that flows through us? I love how uh, Psalm 90 is one of the psalms that Moses wrote. And as they're coming out of slavery, right, for 400 years they've been in Egypt. All of the fruit of their hands has been taken away. Everything that they've labored for has always been taken by their masters. And so as they're saying, God, thank you for delivering us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for what you've done. There's this one line on Psalm 90, 17 that, that says, God, would you establish the work of our hands? Would you establish the work of our hands? That God, is we're, we're able finally to keep it to ourselves, God, would you make it a blessing? Would it not slip through our fingers? Would it not be taken away? God, establish it so that it can serve us and our children's children. So Psalm 90 verse 17 says, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God cares not only about redeeming souls, as David Bruce Hedgeman says, but restoring his creation. He calls us to be agents not only of his saving grace, 
but also of his common grace. Common grace is a term the Dutch like to use a lot, talking about God's grace to everyone in the world. Our job is not only to build up the church, but to build a society to the glory of God. As agents of God's common grace, we are called to help sustain and renew his creation, to uphold the created institutions of family and society, to pursue science and scholarship, to create works of art and beauty, and to heal and help those suffering from results of the fall. Work involves service according to God's creation, according to the way he's made us. This is the repair of the world, the Jewish concept of Tikkun Olam. There's a rabbi that tells this story about a moving crew that he encountered. And he said this, The boss of the moving crew was a delightful, crusty gentleman, a dead ringer for Willie Nelson. I had never met anyone so enthusiastic about his or her work, and I asked him the source of that enthusiasm. Well, you see, I'm a religious man, he answered, and work is part of my religious mission. Well, what do you mean? I asked. Well, it's like this. Moving is hard for most people. It's a very vulnerable time for them. People are nervous about going to a new community and about having strangers pack their most precious possessions. So I think God wants me to treat my customers with love and to make them feel that I care about their things in their life. God wants me to help make their changes go smoothly. If I can be happy about it, maybe they can be too. That's from Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin. Most of us hearing this, learning this, getting to know more of God's heart through scripture, we go, yeah, I, I want to do that, right? Like, I, I want to worship. I want to have this vocation and calling, and I definitely want to serve people. So what are some practices we can take with us to do this? I'm going to wrap up and just suggest a few practices, and then we'll do a prayer for you guys before we do the last worship song. Uh, but a few practices can be this. Number one, know your true employer, right? You can't serve well if you're paralyzed in fear of what your boss thinks. You can't serve well unless you're like, God, I want the repair of creation according to what you've called. So I'm going to look at what you think of honesty, of what you think of identity, of what you think of this job, of what success in this field means to you. Because God, you are my true employer. I'm not a workist. Work is not my God. You are my God. And you're my true employer. There's been times when my employment has turned on a dime. I came back for one second summer to work for the CEO of a nonprofit, and I was just admin assistant. Their director had, had quit a, 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 um, a day before. And so instantly, with that job, my salary almost doubled, and I took on a ton more responsibilities. And I was like, okay, I guess, God, you know what you're doing. You're my true employer here. When we were in Hamilton and uh, in the recession of 2008 and work was really slow, we were working temp jobs. And I had gone to the pasta factory and done my shift. And I can tell you guys, I'm not great at the pasta factory because I'm not very fast with my hands. The same with I'm not really a great waitress. I tried that too. Not great at that. But there's jobs where I'm like, this is not a great match for my vocation, but I'm going to do it well because God's my true employer. One day, I'm at the pasta factory. I got my steel toes on. And I'm like, you know, putting frozen pasta in boxes. And then I get a call that the next day, I'm assistant to the vice president of development at a regional cancer hospital from a different temp agency. Okay, God, you're my employer. You know what you're doing. And that job was, again, a great blessing and a great encouragement. God's my true employer. And that leads us to determine our ethics in advance. You can't serve well if you don't know where your lines are. 
your values, your ethics, your boundaries, especially related to the topics and ideas that we go into at our jobs, especially as related to our particular lines of work. When I was asked at one Echo uh, Lab to lie about the machine you know, that was on a service plan and say that it was the machine that wasn't on a service plan, I'm like, can't do that. I know it costs you $10,000 more to renew the warranty in this machine, but like, I can't. I know this is the only job that I have right now. I, I know that they might fire me, but I'm just gonna say respectfully, I'm sorry I can't do that. Turned out that they kept me on, moved me to a different machine, and didn't make me <laughs> say anything particular. But I'm like, hey man, God's my true employer. I need this job, but more so, I need to know that I'm honoring God. When I was in a few other situations, some other things came up, but I think I'm gonna leave it there as now. That also means about work boundaries, right? For every 10 hours above a 45-hour work week, your risk of divorce doubles. If you're at a workplace that's constantly trying to take a mile when you've given an inch, you've gotta set time boundaries if you're gonna value your people, your family, your friends, if you're married, your spouse, and if you have kids, your children. But part of your ethics is determining your time boundaries. Is God your true employer? And then working hard, right? The ethics of work is that we actually work as if it's for God. The second part's commit, or the third part's commit to excellence. We're gonna build a credible witness through the excellence of our job. May not be good at it, I was not a great waitress, but I did the best I could. And we just do as best as we can in each job. Next part's don't complain. And I don't mean, you know, like if, if something's against the law at your work, you're gonna go make sure it's fixed. You bring up issues when there's real issues. But man, how easy is it to slip into that low-level grumbling? Oh, this job again, back at the grind. Another day, another dollar. Probably know somebody that says that a lot, right? That low-level grumbling, man, we don't need to do that. We don't need to be that. That's counter to what God wants us to become. Philippians 2 asks us to do everything without grumbling because he wants us to shine like stars in the universe. Every day we get to have the idea of, okay, this job is worship, it's vocation, it's service. So yeah, there's toil. But this is first and foremost avodah. I get to do this. I don't just have to do this. And the last part is steward your privilege for others, right? Whatever power you have. You may have the more seniority among the cashiers. Use that for others. You may be somebody who's an inspector or has seniority or even just does your job really well. But whatever power you have, we're going to use that to serve other people. Use what you have. And when we're in the position, as many of us will be, in designing jobs for other people and seeing how we're going to operate a business and what wages we're going to pay and conditions we're going to make, we can create dignifying work for people. So as Jared comes up, I'm just going to pray a blessing over us. Can I ask you guys to stand? It's just going to be a short blessing, but I'm going to pray for worship, for vocation, and for service. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I pray as always that uh, we would know you, first and foremost, God, that as you call us to be people who are forgiven, set free, saved, and raised to life, Lord. God, we receive that today. Whether we receive that truth again and just glory in it, Lord, or whether we receive it for the first time and say, yes, Jesus, come into my life, change my heart, and make me new. God, we thank you for what you've done to save us and what we can't do ourselves. And God, as we go out today, I pray that our workplaces are saturated with the presence of God as we worship. I pray that what we do brings us joy, God, that we find vocation in our work and the calling that you've made for each of us. 
God, I pray that our work blesses us, you establish the work of our hands, and you bless those around us. God, I pray for each of us. May we work from an integrated life of avodah, worship, vocation, and service. In Jesus' name, amen.